Hi, this is Louis Marvin, Training Specialist with the National Sexual Violence Resource Center. On Wednesdays for the next several weeks, we'll be releasing a series of episodes on Resource on the Go about working with male survivors of sexual assault. In this series, you'll hear me talking with a number of guests who have experiences with different aspects of providing services at sexual assault centers to survivors who are men. Some of the topics we'll get into involve understanding socialization and stigma particular to men and sexual violence, how to reach men in your community so they know your center is a place they can get services, how to form partnerships that help serve male survivors, and more. In addition to this podcast series, we've got some other resources currently available and soon to become available online related to working with male survivors. For those resources and more, and to reach out for support working with male survivors, visit our website at www.nsvrc.org or email us at resources at nsvrc.org. Enjoy the series. Welcome to Resource on the Go, a podcast from the National Sexual Violence Resource Center on understanding, responding to, and preventing sexual abuse and assault. My name is Louis Marvin, and I'm the training specialist at the National Sexual Violence Resource Center. This podcast is part of our Male Survivor Series. Today, Kenton Kirby joins me to talk about understanding expressions of trauma for men. Kenton is the director of practice at the Center for Court Innovation. Thanks for being on the podcast. Can you introduce yourself and share a little bit about your anti-violence work with young men? Hey, thank. How you doing, Louis? Uh, yes. Uh, so I'm Kenton Kirby. Um, as we mentioned, I'm the director of practice at the Center for Court Innovation. I've been in the field um, working specifically in anti-violence work for about 10, 15 years, uh, but in a number of different settings. Um, I started out in child welfare. Uh, working with families who are in the child welfare system. And then I worked in the courts as an advocate, uh, working with families and individuals who had who tied up in various court matters. And I served as their advocate and another a voice of, um, you know, support for them in those in their experiences. But for the past uh, maybe seven years, I worked uh, intimately with a anti-gun violence project in Brooklyn, New York, uh, called Save Our Streets Brooklyn. Uh, it's a replication of the cure violence model that started in Chicago, where you look at community viol- gun violence specifically uh, from the lens of a public health issue. Uh, we hire folks who have uh, their own social currency in the community. Maybe at some point they were involved in gun violence in their earlier days when they were younger, maybe formerly incarcerated, or they're just the influencer in the neighborhood who was able, were able to reach those closest to the issue of gun violence. I was, as a social worker, I was actually one of the first social workers in New York to work very closely with uh, anti-gun violence projects. So with our, uh, we call them ho- outreach workers and violence interrupters as they're canvassing the community, and making connections with folks um, and talking that anti-gun violence messaging, I was also the social worker walking alongside them, you know, often talking about mental health, the importance of mental health, and um, really processing things. And so my job was to 
being connected, working alongside these outreach workers and violence interrupters, but also providing that ongoing mental health services to some of these participants who typically, because of mistrust in the systems, which is justified historically, um, that I would be able to provide those mental health services and not in the traditional way of just coming to the office, paying your copay and sitting there and like waiting your turn, having a 30 minute or 45 minute session with me and then you're on your way. Uh, really bringing the intervention right to them in the community. Having the session on your block, sitting on a bench or um, having a session, you know, in a place that you're safe, uh, understanding that a lot of our young folks that we work with, particularly young men, um, as a form of survival, uh, many of the young men we work with are uh, joined street organizations to, to feel belong, to belong something and to feel safe. And that comes with other things like that, that compromise your safety. So maybe you can't come to my neighborhood where my office is set, set in. So I have to go out to you. Uh, so I uh, did that for a number of years. And now I'm in a role where I have to um, I'm working with our larger agency to really start in, injecting a culture of practice. Um, how do we provide supportive services to folks that's anti-racist, anti-oppressive, um, and really leading with the clients and participants' needs? So that's where I'm at now. So thank you for having me here. Thanks, Ken. You're doing such great work, and you're already touching on so many of the things that we at NSVRC are talking about in this project and beyond. Um, so I guess I just want to talk about um, that safety that you you mentioned in um, in introducing your work. And so you're working with young men who've experienced some kind of harm. Um, so how do you create safety for a young man who has been harmed to to talk about that harm? And particularly, how can an advocate do that in their work at the sexual assault center? I think I learned um, how to get for me, it was a learning process to get there. Um, since I started, like I mentioned, I, I worked in child welfare and I was a cog in the system. And I had the same language that I was trained in using. Uh, some of the language that, that really resonates with me was, hey, um, it's agency policy. It's not my, that's not my job, those things, but I'm here to help you. Um, those are, uh, those are, those are things you say in a conversation to end the conversation or to get out of the conversation. And so for so many years, I was trained in that way and I was actually exercising that. And I think I started kind of coming to terms with like, with that when I became an advocate in the courts and I was serving as this advocate, trying to lift up the voices of the folks I'm working for while pushing against those systems that I worked in. And I was getting that same response. Oh, that's our policy, Mr. Kirby. We can't do anything. It's not this, it's out of our control. And then I was like, well, I'm doing the same thing here. What kind of advocate am I? An advocate is supposed to push against the grain. So in my work with the young men, I, I started working with in my new job, my current role, not well, my previous role at my agency. Um, I realized I had to lead with fun humility and understand that I represent a system historically that has caused harm. To, to, to the young folks I've worked with, the young men I've worked with. And building trust has to come from that place of humility and being consistent. So if I tell some young person that I'm working with that, I'm gonna see them every Wednesday. I better show up every Wednesday, even if they're not, even if they don't show up. I better make that call every Tuesday if I say I'm gonna do it, right? Um, 
And that is how you build trust. That is how I was able to build trust, being consistent and also being humble and understanding that, hey, listen, you don't have to trust me and you are justified in that. In that. But this is what I'm going to do. And it worked. I mean, in my experience, it worked. Um, being, and I think it was because, and I, I think it worked because when I get feedback from the young men I've worked with, with their varied lived experiences, many of them say it's like it was like I didn't, you weren't like a social worker or caseworker, Ken. And I'm like, well, that's what I am. I'm a social worker. But they're like, but you're different. And it made me think about how many times they were told that word, oh, it's out of my control. I can't do everything, but what I can say is I don't have the answer. But let me see what I can do, and I'm going to keep you updated as, as best as I can. So humility, transparency, and patience, those are the three things that I feel really helped me build trust with the young folks, the, the young men I've worked with over the years. That's great. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, and I know that in, in conversations that we've had um, outside of this, um, of this podcast episode, uh, we've talked about how important it is for um, for you and for others who are, are working with men to understand the ways that men express trauma. And so what are some of the common ways that men express trauma? And what are some of the important things to know for someone who is encountering those expressions, for example, like an advocate at a sexual assault center? I mean, I would say a lot of the, the response, how how I've seen trauma, trauma reactions in the young men I've worked with is definitely not the traditional, like, uh, coming in, cowering in a corner. Um, in fact, it's the, some, many times it's the complete opposite. It's someone who is a bit more assertive. I, I don't want to say aggressive, assertive in their physical expression. Um, someone who is, will push you away. Um, and I think that is tied can be can be tied to our lessons around how how we're supposed to be socialized as men um our earlier our earliest messaging that we're getting is when we're a baby learning how to walk and you fall and you're about to cry and everyone tells you hey boy don't don't cry don't cry it's okay don't cry um that is the first opportunity where we had our emotional experience muted and when we don't, when we follow that script, we're then celebrated. So then as we get older, the more we don't show those complex emotions, the better people, oh, they're not, he's, he's got this, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a man, he's, he's got this under control. When in fact, not having that full understanding and complex, uh, understanding those complex emotions really impacts how we engage with folks, how we make connections with people, how do we assess what a safe space is for us, right? Um, looking at something something like vulnerability as this thing that is, whoa, that we can't show that, right? When in fact, there's so much strength in vulnerability and so much growth in vulnerability. I'm running groups. I used to, before every group, I would check in and be like, how are you doing? And every young man would tell me, I'm good. And I'm like, no tell me more, give me more of what, what do you mean by I'm good? And that was the hardest question for so many of them to understand, to even like, to like break down and talk deeper about. Uh, I had young people who couldn't even physically, couldn't even like verbalize how they were feeling. They would express it like just through their body language and would des describe somebody, say they're really making me feel. And then like just start like just 
physically manifesting their feelings. And it was such a hard, it was such a challenge for them to connect that to words. And so um, that, that has been a real, that's been something that I've focused a lot of my energy on. And I've loved like some of the young men I've worked with who were at that point, they couldn't even put words to it, are now able to say, Ken, you know what, I felt, I was angry, but I really think I was embarrassed by what, by what was going on. So that's why my anger came out. So they were understanding that this, there's a secondary, there's layers to emotion, but that took time. That took time and that took me being patient. That took, that was time and it took us understanding that this service, it should not be tethered and attached to some kind of punishment. It took time because these guys, they, they felt that, you know, they needed to trust us. They needed to trust the work that we were doing and understanding that it wasn't uh, because of some system that was going to dictate them after they worked with us. So that was, uh, that, that's been my experience with uh, helping a young man understand their emotions and being able to be vulnerable. Yeah, I think that's really great for, for advocates to hear. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I think that um, it can be it can be really scary to think about encountering someone who is coming from a place of maybe anger, if that's if that's the only emotion that that they've been um, told their whole life is acceptable to to express. So I think you're really walking through um, some really helpful stuff for for advocates to um, to to build that trust that you're talking about. Um, so also in our conversations about um, working with with male survivors, you've shared that um, that sexual assault and sexual abuse has really been an underlying theme for a lot of men, even though it's really been the presenting issue and it's it's not necessarily the the overt or specific reason that you've been working with a lot of young men. Um, but what can advocates at sexual assault centers um, learn from that, that um, that men are showing up with different presenting issues, but that sexual abuse and assault uh, may be underlying issues. So what can what can those advocates at sexual assault centers um, learn from that in their work with male survivors? Yeah, I mean, just because whatever the presenting issue is, understand there are layers beneath that, right? The presenting issue is literally the, the presenting issue is what we know. And what we know is what people are allowing us to know, right? Um, I work with a young young person for three years, three, four years intimately, walk with him through various things. And he did not disclose to me, not this wasn't sex assault, but he did not disclose to me uh, a suicide attempt that he contemplated while he was in treatment with me. And he was like, I didn't feel, I didn't want, I didn't feel like I could share that with anyone yet. So understanding that folks with these Mental health within men is something that's already stigmatized, and we're starting to break down that. We're starting to break down that stigma. There's a lot of really awesome groups, really like focusing on mental health in men, mental health in Black men, um, which has been which is great. But that stigma has prevented a lot of people from sharing their true experiences. So understand whatever that presenting issue is, be ready that there may be more stuff under the under the under the under the under the mat and be willing and be ready for it when it happens when it comes out but understand that it's not it's not our timeline it's their timeline and we have to and we have to create that space where they feel like they can share like that young man told me after several years that he that he made that attempt i didn't go i was like oh, i wish he would have told me 
I was like, what did, what did I miss? Well, what did not, what didn't I do that made this young man feel comfortable enough to, to share this with me? And I was reflecting on it. He was spending more time in our groups than an individual. And that's not something that he would want to share in a group. He probably, if I gave him, if we had more opportunities where we had, maybe I would meet with him maybe once a month, twice a month individually, but I was seeing him every week for groups. If I switched that around, if I listened to the indicators, if I paid a little more attention to those indicators in group, maybe I would have picked up on something like, hey, you know what, maybe this kid, maybe some man needs a bit more one-on-one, you know? So um, that's what I would suggest. Be patient around like, understand that this is on their timeline and then assess your own intervention. Is the intervention the one that they actually need in the moment? Because he needed group, he got something out of group, but he would have gotten more out of that one-on-one time. Yeah. Yeah, and the stigma around mental health that you're talking about, um, it seems to me that shame is is something that kind of um, exists along along that same lines. And so um, how, how have you seen shame function as an experience for, for male survivors of sexual assault? I mean, shame breeds, shame breeds isolation. And at least for the young men that I've worked with, uh, that shame, it leads, it has led to um, more assertive behavior, more assertive uh, expressions. Um, and the, the assertiveness of the, the, I'll say aggression, the aggression that we see pushes people away. By pushing people away, I'm able to isolate myself. Oh, don't go bother him. Oh, he's not the one to mess with. Oh, no, I'm stay away. So now that breeds my own isolation, my shame, embarrassment, anger, all breeds my isolation and my behaviors reinforce that. I don't have no new, I don't get new friends. I don't trust new, I don't trust anybody new, no new friends. And then you go, but what about any of your friends? Oh, I I trust them as far as I can see them. Hmm. What's that about? You start peeling back the layers and you start thinking about that the first five years of someone's life. How do they, how do they, how do they learn their, what's their attachment style? Where does that come from? If you had traumatic experiences happening in that moment, well, during that, that vital time, that zero to five range, I'm not surprised when I see certain, certain behaviors out here, right? I don't condemn you for those behaviors. I understand that those behaviors are to keep you safe in, 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 your, in your notion of what safety is. But now my question is, okay, do we still need to be this kind of, do you still need to be that way? And that's the challenge, that's the problem. How do we get our young folks from this level space of, how do we get us of male survivors from a place of, surviving to thriving and that's one of the biggest challenges yeah yeah ken um you mentioned um before that for the young men um, that you're working with they're um encountering a system maybe as part of a, a punitive measure and so talk about how you approach young men who are having that experience um how do you talk um how do you approach young men as their advocate who recognizes that it takes courage to disclose sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. Oh, understand that, you know, like that probably acknowledging that, you know, it, it one, it takes a lot to do it, right? But secondly, maybe you never had an experience or a setting that made you feel safe enough to even exp- 
expose it because now you're thinking about all of the things that can happen, the domino effect of now I disclose this and now this person's going to know and this person's going to know. And, you know, we talked about isolation. That isolation was keeping my story safe, was protecting my story, was protecting that so no one could do anything about it. No one can do, no one, no one can take advantage of me anymore because I'm holding the story. So relinquishing that is like such a scary moment, right? It's such a scary experience. So how do we give folks comfort when they, when they do that and protect that story the same way, right? I mean, I worked for years ago, I worked at a, a child advocacy center and I used to work with young folks and our system of like accountability, I'm using air quotes, it's, it punishes the person that was harmed so horribly. I remember doing interviews with a child and there's like eight people on the other side of this one-way mirror and we're like, oh, we're trying to reduce harm. Instead of having all these people interview this kid, I'm doing an interview, but they're all watching. They're all watching it like it's a movie. And like, are now making, now I'm gonna go and get the systems moving their, moving their role, getting that stuff going on in the, in the systems. For my story that I've, that I've protected, and kept me safe, and now I'm not safe anymore. Because now if I wanna have accountability in this formal, how we, how we look at it, I gotta testify. I gotta do this, I gotta, I gotta talk here, I gotta show, I gotta stand up and say, yes, I'm this person that's been harmed by this person. That is like, that is such, that is not just vulnerability because the strength of vulnerability. That, that, that it gets to be an exploitive in the notion of what we call justice. And I think as an advocate, as a person that works alongside folks, really needing to understand the gravity of that disclosure. What does that mean? What chance did they take to tell you <laughs> Because you were not the, you're probably not the first person that they could have said something to. So, so understand that the gravity of that responsibility, and take it seriously. You know, so like I say things like in that kind of moment, uh, agent. This is agent. This is agent's policy. We can't do it. It's not something that I'm, I'm throwing out there because that was that took bravery on your end, and I need to honor that just like you have. Yeah, I, I think probably um, a lot of folks would recognize that isolation is maybe one coping mechanism or a result of coping mechanism um, that a survivor might go through. But I really appreciate how how you've laid out kind of all those steps along the way. I think um, I think the way that you um, you approach the work is um, is really great, and our listeners are going to have a lot of. Um, a lot of great thinking to do from um, from hearing that approach that you bring to um, to working with young men in particular. Um, Kenton, is there anything else that you wanted to share with our audience about about working with male survivors? Yeah, I mean, uh, in my work with the young men I've worked with, I've always looked at historically what help looked like, and actually, even start, I even started questioning the term help. Help kind of creates this uh, hierarchy. Like you're less than, you're lesser than me because I'm here to help you and show you what to do. 
if we are truly trying to empower folks or not even just empower, but leverage the expertise and strength that they already have because they were getting through whatever they were getting through without us there. If we can humble ourselves as practitioners, I feel we can make more of an impact for the folks that we get to work for. I'm not here to help you. I'm here to work for you. If my, if my, if, if this was not an issue and I wouldn't have a job, there'll be no grants, no grant, no funding opportunities for me and my agency to go out there and get if you weren't, if this, these situations weren't happening. So we need to lead like that. We are here to, in service of you. And that is how we really truly make progress with folks, in my opinion. So yeah, uh, question that notion of help. We're here to work for people, but I'm not here to help you. That's a, a great final final word on our on our conversation, Ken. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we invite listeners to learn more about working with male survivors by checking out the links in the show notes. listening for this episode of Resource on the Go. For more resources and information about understanding, responding to, and preventing sexual assault, visit our website at www.nsvrc.org. You can also get in touch with us by emailing resources at nsvrc.org.